dang, your brain is complicated. And really, even just thinking about it makes my brain hurt. Then there's all these people that study the brain, what the brain is doing, and why it's doing the things that it's doing. And that just, I don't know, hurts my brain even more. My name is Louis Colorotolo. I don't study the brain, but I am trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science over at the University of Guelph. And in my free time, I talk to people who think about brains. Like, specifically, Abdallah Bili. And he has come here today to tell us that there are so many different parts of the brain and they do so many different activities. But since talking about the brain is so gosh darn confusing for my brain, he uses a lot of metaphors to explain it to us when he's talking. In fact, get ready for a metaphor right now from Abdallah himself. Hippocampus is the, the part that puts down the railroad structure just to allow the frontal cortex to navigate through it. So which memories does the frontal cortex wants to extract from the hippocampus so that you can act on it? If you really like metaphors about railroad tracks and brains and how brains are like railroad tracks, well then you are in luck because we are going to talk all about brains, brain metaphors, and how that relates to schizophrenia. But while your brain is thinking and listening about what we're talking about, keep in mind we are just graduate students. We don't know absolutely everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Abdallah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Honest, fine over here. But before we get started, could you do us a favor and just tell us your educational history? Yes, so um, I come from Sudan originally. That's where I did my undergraduate degree at the University of uh, Khartoum. My major was actually zoology, but majoring in genetics. So studying uh, diseases such as uh, elephantitis. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree journey, I decided, hey, I actually like science. So going and go for graduate school. But then I decided to travel and come to Canada. And I am here right now where I have finished my master's degree uh, in molecular and cellular uh, biology department. And I finished studying the ribosomal RNA biogenesis. And then finishing that, I actually decided to make a massive uh, leap and join the neuroscience field where I'm currently finishing my PhD degree, focusing on the role of a specific gene that we call GSK3 or glycogen synthase kinase 3, its effect on the brain, its effect on brain system communication, effect on uh, behavior aspects using animals in particular. I have an idea. I'm going to write a name for the novel of your self-biography or autobiography. I'm thinking something along the lines of like um, from elephantitis to (laughs) the nervous system. I'm trying to make like a scale like a Yes, yes. You know, the, 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 I actually have given a talk at the, at the university. This would have been two years ago, but back in a time when people were allowed to actually meet in person. And I, na- and I labeled my talk was my journey to neuroscience. And it was really interesting to look at it, reflecting back on it now, where I come from and where I've ended. And it just makes me feel happy. And I, and I feel that if I could do it, everyone else can. All right. Well, th- that's beautiful stuff. So, so we're, unfortunately, we're not going to be talking about elephantitis today. We're not going to be talking about ribosomes as much today, but, but neurology. All right. So we start off, I think about neurology. All I can really think about uh, is, you know, those, those, those iconic kind of, you know, scenes in movies where they like zoom into someone's brain and there's a bunch of like electrical sparks going on and they come up with a genius idea and they're able to escape the supervillain and his layer of crocodiles. 
Yeah, you know what? Um, these movies actually sometimes they they kind of have some sort of truthness to it. So, uh, the speaking you just mentioned something about spikes and and zooming into some something something brain or someone's brain. Yes, yes. Um, we actually have my focus of my research right now in my P during my PhD is actually understanding the so-called brain system communication or using it as a tool to understand deficits that we see in diseases such as Alzheimer's or schizophrenia. And these brain system communication, we refer to them as neuronal oscillation. These are actually spikes in the brain. So every time I'm working with animals, I could see spikes coming from certain brain region to try and understand are these spikes readings giving me good output to what I'm seeing and comparing that between control animals and the animal model that I'm working with, it kind of gives me an idea of if the brain region is defective or not. Uh, so the brain, we've heard before probably somewhere in media, the brain's a muscle. Uh, you have to work this muscle and we can't read thoughts, right? You know, it's, um, it's really interesting. One of the things that I've actually, actually fascinates me the most is that oftentimes we think about how we can keep up our muscles, right? We go, can go to the gym, we can go for um, specific practices to strengthen certain muscles, but the brain is a muscle that we, science have showed us multiple ways that we could actually improve it. One of the best things to do it is keeping your brain actively challenging it actively and thinking and even exercises itself. The exercises um, have shown in specifically in diseases such as Alzheimer's, for instance, it, it increases certain levels of certain genes that actually have shown um, help in or these genes have used been used as a biomarker. So yeah, so these exercises actually uh, helps in and in, in certain in certain diseases such as Alzheimer's, it has been shown that actual exercises um, delays the onset of the cognitive deficits we see in Alzheimer's. Not only that, but there are certain genes that when you exercise, their levels increase, ultimately resulting in uh, improving the cognitive aspects of, of uh, in these diseases. All right, so we, we got kind of a, a big kind of picture over here. Your brain, it's complicated. Like, let, let's be for real. It's something that is beyond my scope of understanding. Um, and that's my brain telling me to tell you that I don't understand it. So that's complicated in its own sense. But the, the brain is this complex muscle. And I, I think of, uh, you know, the ways that we see it in media. There's parts of your brain that do specific functions. I think people have seen like infographics of like, oh, it, this area is for short-term memory and this area is for uh, long-term memory. That's all I can think of. Yeah, that's that's actually true. So so I'm, I'm going to give you an example about my research. So my, my focus of my research is to understand, uh, as I said earlier, the protein called GSK3 influencing the brain. I'm targeting mainly two brain regions, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. And, and, and one question could always pop up. Why are you targeting these two regions? And the answer comes to the question that you posted, which is these two regions have completely, not completely, but have functions that are related to cognitive abilities and memory. For instance, when we look at the prefrontal cortex, this is an area um, that has been shown to be highly involved in cognition in general, whereas the hippocampus mostly related to memory. So we could think about the communication between those two brain regions and how this facilitates one's lifestyle and, and, and choices in general. And, and, and I think one of the famous things that I really like to always refer to when I come to speak about these two particular brain regions is the, the, the analogy of a rail, the railroad uh, hypothesis, which was uh, posted by the famous scientist Cohen. So it, they essentially say that the communication between those two regions, you could, you could think about it as in the hippocampus is the, the part that puts 
down the rail road structure just to allow the frontal cortex to navigate through it. So which memories does the frontal cortex wants to extract from the hippocampus so that you can act on it? And these are really something, um, that when you think about them in general, these are really some cool discoveries because we look at the brain as compartmentalization is important. Each region plays a certain role, but each region doesn't act uh, independently of other regions. That's communication between these regions is also they're also uh, critical for the overall processing or yeah and i think this is a, a real fun analogy that you put forward and and i understand that you didn't come up with it yourself right the railroad uh, but you know what i'm thinking of and i don't know if you you recognize this this imagery but i, I there's a cartoon and it might be like a wallace and gromit cartoon where uh, he's riding on a train and simultaneously at the same time he's putting down the tracks to make sure that the train doesn't run off of the tracks um, because this process is fluid. You know, it, your, your brain, I'm assuming, doesn't have every track laid out ahead of time for your entire life. It has to set down new tracks. So, yes, yeah, so, so one of the best things that actually is a really good question, one of the most fascinating things about the human brain is the idea of uh, neuronal plasticity, meaning that there are, we know that there are billions of um, uh, nerve cells that are present in the, in the brain, right? Um, 100 billion maybe or something like that. Uh, they always communicate between each, with each other. And this communication path is this you refer to as tracks, for instance, and synapses, we call them. Um, they are actually, every time that we create something new, there is a chance for us to lay new tracks. And, and actually, one of the most fascinating things when it comes to that is the discovery that was done by the, the, the famous neuroscientist Eric Kandel. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for that discovery, which is essentially showing us something really great, that every time we learn new things, we increase the number of synapses, tracks in the brain. It, in fact, it doubles. So, so what does this tell us? It tells us that learning, the learning activity, allow us to build new tracks in the brain. Then these new tracks that are built in the brain, how can we maintain them? Repetition. You repeat things, you maintain it. You repeat things, you maintain these tracks. But the other thing that is also crucial in that discovery was that if you learn something, you double the amount of synapses, connections, and, and, and I think they went from 13,000 to 26,000 um, in the hippocampus when they did that study. Um, but what the fascinating part was if you don't repeat or practice what you have learned, you stand a high chance of losing these new tracks that you've laid in the brain. And the loss of synaptic connections ultimately could result in memory losses, for instance, in, in, in the certain aspect or the certain topic or whatever that you have learned, you tend to forget it. In humans, there's constantly new tracks that are laid down. You could actually do it yourself if you're interested. This rings true. This, this I hear what you're saying now, and it, it makes so much sense to me. Uh, it's been a long time since I've taken an exam. When, when was the last time you took a test? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, it would have been my qualifying exam, but two so, years ago, yes. <laughs> so, so it's been a while. And you, you had to, I'm assuming, doing a lot of studying for that test. Absolutely, absolutely. Qualifying exam is the killer exam. <laughs> and I, I mean this in the nicest way possible. And I, you know, I, I believe that you're very smart and you know what you're doing, but... How much do you actually remember? <laughs> so this is actually a really nice question. First, I only remember what I have used constantly following the qualifying exam. Everything that I haven't touched on after the qualifying exam, I could honestly say that this information have been long gone. <laughs> yeah, the, the tracks are no longer there. The tracks are depleted. 
uh, we have to dig new ones now. <laughs> right, right. You know, they've, they've worn away. Like, you ever go to, like, an abandoned train yard, you know, in, in the middle of the countryside, and then all the tracks are, like, all cracked and, 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 and melted and things like that. that that's kind of where those tracks that you laid in order to pass that exam went. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So you kind of, and this is where I feel like sometimes you have the deja vu experience. So like, oh, I remember this. This was somewhere here or there. In reality, you're just rediscovering tracks that you have laid down a long time ago and you just didn't maintain them. Yeah, and this is a process that is constantly happening in our brains. Like, I, I can only imagine if our brain was like, all right, I need to remember absolutely everything that I learned, your brain would be exhausted. Yes, yes, definitely. And, and I think it, one of the main things I, say, I think we should touch on here is that the concept of um, the conscious mind versus the subconscious mind. And, and, and we know that the conscious mind does require a lot of energy to run. And, and the subconscious mind, it, it just runs on the background. And the difference between them is that we as humans, I think we tend to use 95% of our daily uses for our brain is our subconscious mind. So it doesn't consume a lot of energy, um, leaving behind the 5%. That's when you're actually actively thinking about what you're doing, thinking about what you're saying. And that kind of gives you the leverage of not being tired all the time now i'm going to go a little bit deeper on that so this subconscious mind as i said it's 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 the mind that controls our daily life so if we go to the atrium go to campus get uh, coffee and we know that we like uh, double double for instance in canada if you're somewhere else <laughs> you could like uh, maybe you like different coffees right um so we go, go to the market buy our favorite food um you like sports, you go play sports, all these activities, daily activities, choices of food, choices of music, they all operate on your conscious mind. They operate on the subconscious mind, but the conscious mind uses the lower percentage of your brain. Um, and a lot of people actually think about the idea of how can we increase that 5% to go to 7%. And perhaps that's the next step that we see in the human evolution. Who knows that? How can we improve our usage of conscious mind in order for us to become better and use um, a much more efficient um, be more much be more efficient in our thinking so yes that is true so you could you could definitely say that it is tiring to always use your brain in the conscious side of it but if you're using the subconscious you tend to kind of operate on the low battery so I, you know and I'm, I'm going up back to movies a lot movies and tv because that's that's the only place that i can really relate to these things you know there's that old thing like well what if we used a hundred percent of our brain yes um you know this is actually really nice as a scientist you're always fascinated by that and and i always ask my 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 colleagues a question would you rather live in the past or would you ra rather live in the future and and oftentimes my my answer to that question is that i want to live in the future because i want to see us as a homo sapiens species how are we living a century from now a decade from now maybe not a decade I'll, hopefully i'll be living <laughs> a decade from now but a century from now how how are we operating and how are we using higher capacity of our brain and what kind of lifestyle are we generating by increasing the capacity of our brains can we use a hundred percent i don't know it's it takes a lot of energy so i, I don't know but if we can use 10 percent of our brain like conscious the conscious mind of it i think it will be something really really great all right so when it comes down to this and i don't mean to by all means uh, uh you know diminish the complicatedness of this 
But uh, your brain is a big old slop of neurons and proteins and stuff. And and it does a lot of things and it talks to itself and it talks between different lobes and it does a whole bunch of different things. Um, But it, it seems like you figured pretty much most of it out what what are you still researching ah this is actually a really nice question so i always link this question to the question of the space which was why do we need to invade to go to the space when there's so much unknown stuff in, in on earth and the always the answer for that is that the in science the idea of knowledge never comes from a comfortable state of mind a comfortable place so if you know a lot of things it does you, you tend to settle you don't tend to explore things and 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 the good thing is that the good things come out when we actually touch on the things that we are not comfortable with. We're not comfortable to go to space, but perhaps when we go there, we can learn things and come back and learn a lot about our, our beginnings. Uh, the same thing applied to the mind, the human brain in general. We really don't know much about the brain in reality. And, and we have so many discoveries, so many papers published about uh, about the brain and, and the neurons and all the different connectivities between different brain regions and perhaps some of this fundamental aspects that we operate on in life are actually where we were actually able to relate them to certain brain regions. However, there's still a lot of things that we don't know about the human brain. There's something as simple as, for instance, when we spoke about these uh, synaptic connectivities, when these can synaptic connectivities cut off, we don't know how they rebuild themselves, how they re-guide themselves to create new pathways, new communication lines. And, 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 and the question continu- questions in science in general keep going in, in, in terms of, until now we have so many uh, neuropsychiatric and neurodegenerative disorders we don't, know the, we don't know the answers for. So the idea of knowledge and idea of discoveries is, are always built by touching things that you don't know. Touch the unfamiliar. Be brave enough to stand up and ask questions about things you don't know. And that's the only way for you to come out with answers and good discoveries that could ultimately help the humankind. All right, so let's jump into the helping humankind aspect of this. You looked at, or, or well, you, you currently look at, and what was the exact phrase you used? Neuro, neuro something. Um, so we, yeah, we, we look at um, neuronal oscillations, yes. So linking that back to the help of the humankind. And so my work in particular um, is oriented around the two diseases, Alzheimer's and schizophrenia. How can we actually help, hopefully discover or identify potentially new therapeutic targets? So we use these uh, neuronal oscillations, and you could think about them as brain waves to give us a readout of what we are actually doing or manipulating in the brain and how are these manipulations affecting the brain regions. And they are, in fact, being used quite often in, in multiple diagnoses. And, and, and in science, in the neuroscience field, these oscillations are actually well, very well credited or, or used. All right, right off the bat, from the top of my head, or should I say from the insides of my brain, I'm thinking Alzheimer's and schizophrenia. I I can't see the connection between those two. They seem like two incredibly different things. Absolutely a very interesting question. And I think that is where, that's where my mind was when I first started. And I started my PhD asking questions about schizophrenia, actually. Mainly, I was interested in it for personal, personal reasons. But then the protein that I was working with, which was GSK3, uh, glycogen synthase kinase 3, I was asking a specific question about the implications of this protein 
in the brain. And it's a protein that we have constantly been seeing in high levels of uh, uh, presence, in high levels in, in, in the brain regions of, of um, schizophrenia patients. But the link between Alzheimer's and, and schizophrenia came up when I was looking at it. And it turns out the same protein is also present in high levels of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So it got us to think about this protein. Maybe it's the missing link. It's what we actually need to address in order for us to solve some of the cognitive deficits we see in these disorders. We have come up with few discoveries that are actually very similar between the two diseases in terms of um, protein expressions, protein uh, presence, and, and they both have Kirk by with the high presence of that protein in certain brain regions, particularly the two regions that I'm interested in, the frontal cortex and the hippocampus. All right. So could you give us like a, a quick definition or, or, or how we perceive what schizophrenia is? When people ask me this question, I like to answer with the fact that when I was in Sudan, my cousins have actually been diagnosed with schizophrenia. We, don't, we didn't know much about it at that time, and he happened to have passed away when I was in Canada here. It would have been on December 26th, actually. Uh, I still remember that very well. Um, it was very touching for me, and in many things that he was doing in his life, we couldn't really understand why he was doing it. One of the things that we were actually watching and that happened when they moved houses, um, he would always go back to the old house. He never remembers the new house. And he would often kind of um, seems to be isolated. So we didn't know much. And then fortunately, he passed away. I came to Canada and I had the chance to actually work on this on my, during my research on, on, on my PhD. So I started asking the same questions. What do we actually know about schizophrenia? And the things that we came to know about it, it's actually a disease that has the positive symptoms, negative symptoms, and as well as the cognitive symptoms. The cognitive aspects of the disease itself is what we see in humans, which is something that we try to replicate in a lab to study, um, because that's whenever we're using animal, doing animal studies, we can't replicate 100% the disease in the animals, but we can replicate aspects of the disorder itself. So one of the aspects was what we were assessing was the sensory motor gating, which is the idea that I just described, the fact that my cousin, he wasn't able to remember places. He wasn't able to remember that, hey, we moved. Or if we walk in the room, he would easily jump. If, if you walk in and you say hi and you drop something, he could jump. And, and these are some of the cognitive deficits that the, the schizophrenia disease actually has. And, and I think um, having the chance to be able to study it deeper and understand it deeper really helped me a lot in, in kind of dealing with the loss of someone that was really deeply close to me. Yeah, that, uh, sorry for your loss. That, that it sounds that it's definitely a tough uh, situation. And I, I unfortunately think schizophrenia gets kind of a, a not great, you know, portrayal in, in society. I think a lot of people think schizophrenia is a purely sort of a negative uh, situation where that is not entirely true. That is correct, actually. One of the biggest um, issues that we deal with, this is just doesn't apply, this does not apply only to schizophrenia, in fact. It applies to mental health disorders in general. And there is a massive stigma about it. And, and it's um, something that we as a society need to work with, have more education, uh, reach out programs to the communities and educate them about the aspect or the fact that um, 
mental health disorder is just a disease that needs attention, just like someone getting uh, a fever. It is true, yes, it is, going back to your question, it is true, absolutely true, that some of the things that we struggle with in society to accept, and I, I think I've heard the speaker, I can't remember the name of the speaker one time when he said that if we really want to solve the issue of homeless, we really should consider solving the issue of schizophrenia first, because truly most of the homeless issues that we see, it's, it's, it's diagnosed and there's schizophrenia in one way, shape or form. So when we come as a society in a way that looking at it from a disease-oriented view, this will help us solve it rather than criminalizing those who are affected with these disorders because it, it doesn't really help. It only pushes them further away from us. If we had known better, perhaps those who have passed away would have still been with us. We have the tools right now to know better. We have the means to spread awareness. We have the means to reach out for help. Let's use it in an efficient way that could increase awareness about these disorders in general. Yeah, you know, it's, it's tricky because although you said it was like a disease, uh, almost in a way that you could say the having the flu once a year is like a disease, there are aspects of it in which you can quantify, you can count things. You can look at the protein and what the protein is doing different in a mind with schizophrenia and a mind without it. So you can study this kind of thing, and that, that's what you're doing. Uh, you're, you're studying the fundamentals of what makes a disease a disease. That is correct. So, and this is the importance of science in general in our lives, is that we tend to go down to the nitty-gritty of the disorders and understanding how the disorders initiate and what make the disorder progress negatively progress in terms of cognitive function, for instance, um, understanding that point would allow us to come up with the best solutions possible. To say that the best example of this is what we have seen throughout the COVID uh, pandemic, is that when we put the effort to understand the real cause of a disease and we put the, um, the resources there, the answer is just a matter of time for us to come to it. And that's really important in science. Yeah, because if we are trying to solve a problem by just like throwing random darts at it and saying like, oh, well, hey, this works for this disease, so we might as well try this. Uh, <laughs> we're not, we, we might get an answer, but it's not going to be the most efficient. That is correct. That is correct. And I think that uh, one of the aspects, I, I always, this is what I love. Uh, this is one of the best things in science, actually, the idea of documenting previous work, previous research. Every time a scientist sit down to solve a problem, they rely on previous observations that have been documented prior to their start of work that allows them to build their hypotheses and therefore test them before coming to a conclusion and publish them to the public. And I think the knowledge that is currently present before our hands right now is actually very helpful for us to make massive leaps in, in answering questions about diseases that we haven't had the chance to address them in the past due to different circumstances, lack of resources, lack of information, lack of um, fundings, lack of interest from the public in general to drive the science forward. Um, so now we are in a position where we're in a time that things are easily exchanged. You could navigate through uh, papers, ideas, findings, 
clicking few buttons on your computer, getting to um, some answers about what questions you're trying to ask, and then formulating your hypothesis and testing it um, in, in different ways before you come to a conclusion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I think you honestly segued better than I could ever segue into what my next question was. But, uh, you know, through all this documentation, through all of this diligent study and looking down into the nitty gritty of it on, on the protein level, you've identified or, or people in your group have identified uh, that there's a connection between schizophrenia and Alzheimer's. Yeah, so we, we think that the protein GSK3 could be the missing link that we're actually trying to understand these disorders. And, and hopefully if we can target them in target the protein itself in these brain regions, hopefully we can alleviate some of the cognitive deficits. In fact, in our lab, we have shown, uh, we've published a paper last year showing that um, increased levels of this specific protein in, 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 in animals, in rats in particular, in the prefrontal cortex or hippocampus resulted, resulted in um, deficits, cognitive deficits that are characteristics of, you could say, uh, diseases such as Alzheimer's. So it's, it's really interesting to see that the high presence of this specific protein, GSK3, results in animals showing cognitive deficits in a particular way. And the really interesting aspect here is that these deficits, we can read them out, as I said, in terms of cognitive behavioral test. We could put the animals in certain tasks that we could test their behavioral um, outcome. Um, we could also use the neuronal oscillations, which is a really nice thing actually to have because so these brain waves, we classify them into delta wave and then theta wave. And then in humans, we have alpha, but in rats, we don't have the alpha or rodents in general. We, they don't have the alpha. You have the beta wave and then the gamma wave. So you measure these waves, how they are operating in the animals that are okay, they don't have any symptoms, or you haven't in, in, increased, you haven't increased the gene, a protein, GSK3, in them. And then you compare it to the animals that have had an increased levels. And, and interestingly enough that these findings were actually shown to have altered two specific brain waves, theta wave and gamma wave. And, and, and these two waves in particular, they're very crucial for memory formation. And, and, and these findings kind of tell us, hey, you know, like you're reading out some peculiar things when you increase the amount of this protein in this region and that region, giving you readings that are suspicious. Like you look at them now, you can sit down and classify how can we solve this issue now. All right, so would you say discovering this thing about the proteins, discovering, you know, the elevated presence of this protein in, in those two regions of the brain uh, that are, you know, present when you have these two different diseases. Would you say it's like something like you found a symptom? We can't really say that we found the symptoms, but we think that the presence of this protein in high levels could possibly be one of the reasons why we see the deficits in the cognitive deficits in these disorders. And one of the things that we could work on, work towards now, is try to lower the presence of this particular protein in the brain. And, and this is where the tricky part is, because truly our protein that we're looking at is the GSK3 protein. It's a really important protein in the body in general, and complete depletion of this protein actually have been linked to cancer in many cases. So you have to come to a solution where you could actually just control the levels of this protein neuroanatomically. So in certain brain regions, you could increase or decrease the levels of the protein in a way that could help you alleviate some of the cognitive deficits. And this is the 
the second step of our research is that after we identified this protein high presence causes this. Now we're going to see, we're in the process of actually seeing what happens or how can we control the levels of this protein in these brain regions in a way that could help us um, alleviate some of the cognitive deficits that we see in those animals. Yeah. All right. Uh, from anyone who was listening to that, and, and from my perspective over here, uh, I'm going to summarize this as, as well as I can. My entire summary is this sounds complicated. <laughs> um, I, it, it sounds interesting. I'm going to rephrase it. It definitely sounds interesting. Is it complicated? Yes, it is complicated. But everything is complicated in life. And, and if we break things slowly, if we break them to small chunks, we will eventually be able to digest them and understand them really well. Yeah, and, and that is your job. You're, you're breaking away at one specific protein that happens to be a, a tricky little protein in the brain. And uh, you are doing some good work with, I imagine, a lot of great people uh, to make, you know, developments in this, uh, these two diseases that are, you know, a big issue in the world. Yeah, we, we hope that towards the end of uh, our work, we hope that we could help the humankind in one way, shape or form. And if that's the way that we could actually move our knowledge forward to get closer to solving the issues of these two disorders, then we will really be extremely happy about it. Yeah, and that's ultimately the goal of, uh, of science in general, isn't it? Yes, definitely. Uh, science is here to help us after all. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. It, it was a true pleasure. My brain is going to be doing a lot of thinking about this afterwards. I don't know which regions of the brain, but uh, I will be thinking about this for quite some time. I think you will do great. It has been uh, a great pleasure for me to come and chat with you here, and I'm happy that you've enjoyed our talk. It is a good thing that people out there like Abdallah are trying to figure out the brain and trying to tell us people who can't figure out the brain how the brain is figuring out the brain. But now that we're done with our conversation with Abdallah, we have to admit that our brains don't actually know all of this stuff, which is why we end every episode of We Know Some Stuff with a little bit of We Not Knowing Some Stuff. The only fact check that we needed to address today was in the earlier part of the episode. When Abdallah was explaining things like ordering your favorite coffee or going and watching your favorite sports and doing some things that you are always doing without thinking about it, he said that these operate on your conscious mind, whereas he meant to say that they operate on the subconscious mind. Was that mistake conscious or subconscious? I don't know enough to determine that. But I have certainly subconscious... Con I've de Let's just say I've consciously decided that this episode is over. Thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.